In centuries past, our folklore traditions and beliefs grew and developed through the telling of stories. It was by oral transmission that tales were propagated and spread. One person may tell another directly, or they may tell a group. In turn, they would tell others, and so the story travelled. In our present time, in many ways, not much has really changed. We still tell and share our stories, our traditions and our beliefs. And our folklore still spreads, adapts and adopts. One person may still tell another directly, or they may tell a group. In turn, they may tell others. But the big difference now is that this process may span continents in seconds. Such is the power of modern technology and the internet. Social media helps to construct the campfire storytelling of the 21st century. The information passing may be asynchronous, but the principles hold true. Our folklore may travel through word, picture, video, or the ubiquitous meme. If these stories are unusual, odd, or just hark back to our past traditions, they may often become viral as a form of light relief from the news of the day. Recently, this happened with one particular video. At first description, nothing seems unusual. The footage was of an annual competition. The competitors were mostly girls, but not exclusively. A large audience gathered to watch the horses put through their paces in a series of races, jump courses and dressage. Why should such an event be deemed viral media? The country was Finland. And the event? The Hobby Horse Championships. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Folklore. The beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present. But under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history, and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. The footage of the Finnish annual Hobby Horse Championships is very easy to find on YouTube, and I would recommend viewing it to get a full flavour of what the introduction earlier hinted at. People were very quick to poke fun and laugh at this video once it started to spread rapidly through social media. This was not done in a particularly malicious way, but rather commenting, oh, look at the crazy Finns and their funny ways. There was no real harm meant. However, those mocking the participants in the Hobby Horse Championships were overlooking 
and missing two very important things. The first is that the participation in this by the predominantly female contestants was viewed, as can be seen in the video interviews, as hugely empowering. Historically, and sadly in some places even now, society was seen to be patriarchal, and women could be subdued, overlooked, or simply not be such powerful characters as men. There is plenty of evidence to suggest how the role of women within some of our customs and traditions is an empowering one, and how women may draw on some of these customs in that way. The Hobby Horse Championships are just another example of this. The second aspect being overlooked, of course, is that this is not some kind of bizarre new creation. The contestants in this event are drawing from a long folkloric history of costumed characters appearing in the guise of horses at seasonal events around the world. The term hobby, with regard to hobby horses, does in fact refer to real horses. A hobby is a small to mid-sized animal rather like a pony. Not a fast-moving animal, but rather a plodding horse which may be thought of as suitable for pulling a cart, for example. Appearing in the English language in the 14th century, hobby takes its roots from the older English term hobbin. We find similar terms in other languages also, such as oban in French and ubino in Italian. Hobbin is most likely a variation on the name robin, and similarly we find the name dobbin to be a very stereotypical one for a cart-pulling nag. In the medieval period, a hobbler was a man who kept a light horse, always ready to be able to deliver news of possible invasion at a moment's notice. As well as carrying intelligence, they would also spy and act as a kind of informal inquisitor. We may certainly begin to see where the idea of the hobby horse may be coming from here, particularly when we consider the role in many processional customs of the horse and its accompanying fool or teaser character to harass the public for money or favours. This hob-based etymology is very clear in an old processional custom which was unique to Britain. In the town of Salisbury, a 12-foot-tall processional giant was said to be an effigy of St Christopher. Of more interest is the companion to this figure, a hobby horse named Hobnob, which was used to clear the path of spectators for the giant to process. The first mention of this horse may be found in 1572. Although some hobbies may be constructed around other animals, and we'll return to this point later, the horse is the most common animal symbolised, and we may find them in many cultures globally. They are particularly common across Europe and into the United Kingdom. Hobby horses are often, though certainly not exclusively, associated with seasonal customs, particularly May celebrations and mumming plays. Hobby horses may be designed in many different ways. The publication Ritual Animal Disguise, produced for the Folklore Society in 1978, suggests that the three most prolific types of hobby horse are The Tawny Horse This is built to resemble a person riding a small horse that is wearing a long cloth coat, or caparison. These are the types of coverings traditionally seen with jousting knights at tournament, which is where the derivation of the name comes from. In more recent times, this style of hobby horse has taken on something of a comedic role, with the addition of false legs for the rider to the sides of the saddle. Taking this into the more urban side of folk costuming, we may think of fancy dress outfits available for hire, which make you look like you're riding an ostrich, 
or a dinosaur, or being carried in a rubbish bin on someone's back, for example. Secondly, the sieve horse. This type is found only in the county of Lincolnshire. It is made from a farm sieve frame, with a head and tail attached, the whole thing being suspended from the performer's shoulders. And thirdly, the mast horse. These are intended to represent the horse itself or some other animal, and are quite commonly found accompanying Morris dance sides. The head is often made of wood, or sometimes an actual horse skull is used. In the sculpted form, the jaws are commonly hinged, allowing the mouth to snap. The head is attached to a stick, and the performer covered with a cloth. We find mast horses in many well-known calendar customs in the UK taking place around Christmas or the New Year. The Welsh Mary Fluid horse, which translates as grey mare in English, was constructed with a horse skull atop the pole, often with Christmas baubles for its eyes. With a party of musicians and other revellers, this would travel from house to house, trying to gain entry by improvising song verses which must be responded to by the householders. If they failed to find a suitable last verse for the song, then the party would be allowed entry. If not, then they must move on. This is a custom which, although recently no longer extant, has been revived in many places. A very similar form of horse is found in Cornwall and named the Pen Glass, translating very similarly as Grey Head. This horse was often led by a man with a blackened face, a very common motif in British Morris traditions which has no racial overtones. He was named Old Pen Glaze and was accompanied by many geysers. The Pen Glass tradition is now beginning to leach into midsummer celebrations instead of the traditional midwinter time. It is possible that the famous song Widdicombe Fair, concerning a number of men riding a grey mare across the moor, may have its roots in a long-lost folk custom which is similar to those of the Marichluid and Penglass horses. What is more certain is that all of these sorts of traditions take their early roots from the veneration of horse goddesses, Epona or Rhiannon. Christmas is a time when we see the traditional mummers' plays often performed, and these would extend into the new year in many areas. Plough Monday in early January was observed as an important festival with the coming of the new season ahead and the ground ready to be broken. Many parts of eastern England observed this tradition with large gangs of mummers performing extracts of plays. Photographs of these teams show them accompanied by hobby horses, usually constructed of the more unusual sieve variety fitting with the agricultural importance. We find many parallels in folklore within the United Kingdom and the folklore of Newfoundland, and the act of mumming or mummering as a more common Newfoundland term is no exception. In this area, the mummers would also be accompanied by hobby horses of the mast construction, with the addition of a Christmas bull which was made in a similar way. As in the UK, these customs and festivities are enjoying a more recent revival, and we find that the skill of hobby horse construction has survived in Newfoundland. Traditions in May and June in other parts of the world have many similarities to these mumming customs, and as such often include hobby horse characters. We find examples in Galicia in Spain and in Portugal, where the characters of St George and the Dragon, staples of British mumming plays, do battle. The horse characters in these bear similarities to the Marichluid horses, but the skulls may be of other animals such as foxes or goats. 
A very important George and the Dragon mumming custom is that of the Ducasse de Mont festival in Belgium. Part of this depicts the battle with a large dragon with a very long stiff tail. An illustration of this ceremony from the 19th century shows the dragon with three hobby horses which are clearly of the tawny horse construction. But in more modern versions, these seem to have morphed into animals more resembling dogs than horses. They are in fact called chinchins, the name coming from a corruption of chien, meaning dog. This festival is recognised by UNESCO as being a masterpiece of the oral and intangible cultural heritage of humanity. In the southwest of the United Kingdom, we have three very impressive extant ceremonies which all feature hobby horses very similar to each other, but quite different to the main designs already noted. These horses are of a hooped construction, worn on the shoulders with the carrier's head masked and an animalistic head to the front of the creature. Two of the ceremonies, one in Minehead and the most famous in Padstow, are May Day festivals. The Minehead ceremony boasts three rival horses, the original sailors, the traditional sailors and the town horse. All three of these have boat-shaped frames. The origins are not definite, but May the 1st has certainly been a festival day in the town since 1465. There used to be a similar horse in the nearby town of Dunster which sometimes visited Minehead. The earliest record of the Dunster horse is found in 1792, and although the ceremony died out, the Dunster horse did return in 2010, measuring a massive 12 feet by 4. Padstow is probably the most well-known of all the hobby horse customs, and also probably the oldest. It is also the one to which the term obios, without the H, definitely fits, possibly due to the thick Cornish accent, although that is debatable. The origins of this custom, which is located at Mayday, are really unknown. The earliest mention of the Padstow Oss in its current form is probably around 1803, but an earlier hobby horse is mentioned in the Cornish language drama Buenans Meriasek, about the life of the Camborne saint. Another hobby horse custom in the North Devon village of Martin runs for four days rather than one, spanning Whit Weekend or, more traditionally, Ascension Tide. This celebrates the hunting and capture of the historic figure of the Earl of Tyrone, who fled Ireland on treason charges. Much of the history is inaccurate, so again the true origins are not certain. The festival was banned in 1837 for the wonderful description of drunken and licentious behaviour, but was revived in its current form in 1974. At another culturally significant time of Shrovetide, we find hobby horse customs taking place in the Czech Republic. At this time, a festival known as Killing the Mare is performed. In a similar way to the Marichluid and Penglas traditions, a large party of traditional characters go from house to house, performing ritual dances to ensure wealth and good harvests. Within these groups, there are usually two or three tawny-type horses to be found, as well as straw men, another common character from seasonal customs. In Poland, the custom of Lajkonik also takes place in the spring. Most likely pre-Christian in origin, the horse character here also brought good fortune and ensured that harvests would be prosperous. The term Lajkonik has become very widespread, probably synonymous with good fortune from the festival, and can be found in many Polish product names, hotel names and so on. 
the large conic festival in Krakow may lead us to France, where there are some parallels in a particularly old, impressive, and somewhat disturbing processional, featuring the fearsome creature of a Tarasque. Also recognised by UNESCO for its importance to intangible cultural heritage, the Tarasque is very different to most hobby horses. One image from Avignon, for example, depicts it hoarding severed human heads. It is a dragon-type creature, and there are definite similarities with stories such as Beauty and the Beast or King Kong, where a monster is tamed by a woman, and then hunted and killed when it makes its way into civilization. The effigy of the Tarasque has been reinvented many times, as it has been through a cycle of banning and reviving. The notion of the totem animal is a very strong motif in France, and there are many areas which have festivals, processionals or customs involving hobby horses. Some of these have been traced back as far as the 9th century, and they take various forms, some traditional tawny-style horses, some carried by multiple people, and some not horses at all. The most unusual French totem may well be Le Pourquet, created in the 1970s in the form of a caterpillar. A common theme running through most of these examples is that they are connected to particular old calendrical festivities, May Day, Ascension, Harvest Time and the like. There are many fertility connections here, looking to ensure prosperity and good fortune. But not all hobby horses are related to these customs. This is true of a now-defunct processional hobby horse custom, which is of particular interest to me because of my extensive research into black dog folklore. It is also a piece of folklore that I am very fortunate to be able to preserve, as I now own the horse from this ceremony. In 1993, members of the Devon-based Pennymore Singaround folk group decided to create their own Hobbios festival, which became known as the Running of the Black Dog. In this case, the new tradition was not based on old customs of fertility or anything else, but drew on the folklore of the Black Dog, more specifically the Black Dog of Torrington, to create an event which just allowed people to enjoy themselves and some traditional English custom and song. The Black Dog they created measured 10 feet long from nose to tail and about 4 feet wide. The main body of the construction itself was about half this length, with an extra foot being taken up by the head and the remaining 4 feet by a massive tail. As with other local horses, this creature was constructed around a similar hooped frame, which sat on the dancer's shoulders. Instead of the common hessian or sackcloth which makes up the skirts of the horses in Minehead or Kumartin, cloth was used for the black dog, which made the animal much lighter for the carrier. It was led on a processionary route which took in much of the area around Mortchard Bishop, which is where the Torrington black dog was often sighted. It was danced by a succession of carriers led by a ticer, similar to the traditional fool character, and accompanied by a band of musicians and walkers. A traditional tune, renamed the Black Dog Polka, was used to accompany the os. Commonly, the fool would carry a besom, which traditionally would have been used to flick dirt from the gutters onto those observers of the festival that were not so forthcoming with donations. The role of the ticer here was purely to dance with the dog for the spectacle. Prior to the departure of the Ossin party from the London Inn pub in Mortchard Bishop, a proclamation would be made as follows. 
My lords, ladies and gentlemen, since time immemorial, gentlefolk from all parts of the county of Devon have reported their encounters with the great black dog of myth, song and legend. But never more so than on the road that runs between Morchard Bishop and the village of Black Dog. In these parts, the sighting of the Black Dog has always been taken as an omen of good fortune, for it is believed that the dog is the guardian of great treasure. Tonight, as at every year at this time, we invite you to join us as we dance our own great dog on the road to the Black Dog Inn and join in with the music and dance that heralds the dog's progress through the lanes. The spirited nature that this statement would have instilled in those listening allows us to forgive some of the small factual inaccuracies which it contains. It is not the case, for example, that the Black Dog of Torrington is seen as an omen of good fortune, although there are isolated cases in the southwest where the Black Dog has served this purpose. It is also not believed in any area of this county that the Black Dog is the guardian of a great treasure. There certainly are traditions where this is the case, but again they're more common in Scotland, for example. It is possible that both of these inaccuracies draw on the legend of the Black Dog of Uplime, which was said to have led a man to a hoard of coins. That's about the closest local parallel that I could ascribe to this statement. However, we'll let it go, as the proclamation evidently got the ceremony off to a good start. So, on the Saturday closest to the full moon at the end of October, this procession of musicians, drummers, Tyser, dog and followers would set off from Mortred Bishop and make their way to the terminus at the Black Dog Inn in the village of Black Dog. Incidentally, there is no strong evidence that links either the village name or the pub name to legends of Black Dog folklore, although some would claim it. We can see from the archive that at the outset the ceremony was constructed as an eight-stage process with designated stopping points to allow people to change roles. The Black Dog Inn was, and is, the home of the Pennymore Singers, the group of local vocalists and musicians who meet once a month and who constructed this ceremony. The next year, 1994, the ceremony still took place at the full moon, but was moved to August rather than October, and in an effort to grow it, it announced that camping and caravanning would be available adjacent to the pub. In 1995, the event moved back to its original time of the October full moon, and by now it had grown to some 100 participants. The local newspaper report of this year states that as well as the Tyser, the dog was also accompanied by a green man in the guise of six-foot-five Richard Makepeace, who had travelled down from Oxfordshire for the event. This would have certainly formed an interesting fusing of two distinct calendar customs, the hobby horse and the green man. And so it was, that for a few years the ceremony continued in this form, but appears to have gradually faded away before finally disappearing in the early part of this century. Although there were still some quite decent numbers who were enjoying the ceremony itself, its demise appears to have been down to dwindling numbers who were willing to dance as either the dog or the Tyser. In 2006, a very sad post appeared on the internet forum Mudcat, titled, Does Anyone Want a Hobby Horse? This seemed to suggest that there was no intent to revive the custom again, as the black dog was now sitting in a barn in Mortchard Bishop, looking very sorry for itself, and trying to be rehomed with a Morris dance side or similar. This never happened, and eventually I managed to trace the hobby horse. Considering its enforced stabling in a farm for many years, it's not in a bad state of repair, and my wife Tracy and I will be restoring it during the course of this year.
It is scheduled to make an appearance in October at a folklore weekend, and its preservation and that of the archives of the custom to which it once belonged are now secure. It is pleasing to note that, as well as the Finland Hobby Horse Championships where we started this examination, other modern celebrations of hobby horses are taking place. In the UK at least, there are two formed in the 21st century which feature gatherings of all types of hobby horses from festivals around the country. The symbol of the hobby horse will be around for a long time to come. Everyone needs a hobby. I have one. Maybe you should too. Research assistance on this episode of the Folklore Podcast was provided by Tracy Norman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mark Norman. Find out more about my writing and research at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore. The Folklore Podcast art director is Melissa Martell. Find her work at www.mdmcreate.com. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to, but it is an enormous amount of work to research, create, record and write two of these episodes every month. And so we have created a simple way in which you can help to support the ongoing life of the Folklore Podcast. Please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and click on support. There are various ways that you can help, and they don't all involve giving us money. Even just leaving a simple review on iTunes or other podcast apps helps to grow our audience. So please do visit and take a moment to help us to keep going. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gurdy Bird.